Let's return back to Second Chronicles 15 that our brother just read to us. What a wonderful passage of Scripture you read to us, Brother Chris. Second Chronicles chapter 15. Just very briefly, Asa has just faced the largest army that we ever see fielded in the Bible. One million Ethiopians in the open field. That is one large army. And Asa has won a great victory. You can read about it in the last few verses of chapter 14. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon a man who prophesied to Asa and the returning army that if they would follow the Lord and seek Him with their whole heart, He would be found of them. And if they forsook Him, the Lord would forsake the nation and they would be overthrown. Asa takes courage at the preaching of God's Word and begins a revival, a further revival in the land of Judah. And, and what I would like to show you, you know, verse 8 is the revival. It tells us he took courage. And I hope that every man in here will take courage from Psalm 75, from Ezekiel 22, and from everything else we'll read and preach this day. That every one of you young men will take courage that you're going to be mighty men of God. And you older men will be mighty men in your families and in this church. Our worship of God is not private and is not family. We are a corporate body. It's always been that way under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And we are a church that must stick together and help one another to hold fast corporate worship in a way that pleases God. This man starts a revival. He took courage. He put away the abominable idols out of the land of Judah and Benjamin. Those are the two tribes. And out of the cities which he had taken from Mount Ephraim and renewed the altar of the Lord that was before the porch of the Lord. He starts a revival. And then it tells us in the next verse, And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin. Now those are the two tribes that he had as the king of Judah. The other ten tribes have been taken captive by the king of Assyria. But notice what it says. He gathered all Judah and Benjamin and the strangers with them out of Ephraim and Manasseh and out of Simeon. For they fell to him out of Israel in abundance when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. Those from the ten tribes came to Judah, gave up their inheritance. They wanted to live with the Judites and Benjamites because they had a king that was going to follow the Lord with his whole heart. We have no ambition to build a large church. All we want to do is please God. We want to please God. We want to follow every jot and tittle He's given us in His Word. We want to have a revival in our outward worship. We want to have a revival in our inward man. And if others fall to us from other places, we'll thank God for each one of them. And we'll trust for God to send those that love His Word and His worship as we do. But this is a wonderful description here of those men from the ten tribes that gave up their inheritance to come to Judah for one reason. They were seeking first the kingdom of God. They did not care about their inheritance. They gave it up. They wanted to be where God was worshipped in spirit and truth. And so they gathered themselves together, verse 10, at Jerusalem. They offered to the Lord at the same time 700 oxen and 7,000 sheep. Verse 11, they entered into a covenant that whoever would not fear the Lord should be put to death. Now that's capital punishment for you. That is a great nation. 
If you're not going to fear the Lord, whether you're small or great, man or woman, to death it is. Capital punishment for not fearing the Lord and living for Him with all your heart. And they swear with a loud voice. They blasted on their trumpets. They shouted. They rejoiced because they had sworn with all their heart and they had sought Him with the whole desire. And He was found of them. Praise the Lord. What a chapter of revival against a collapsing society and a collapsing worship of God. We want to do this. We want to have a revival. We want to restore the ancient landmarks. We want to be the repairers of the breaches. And we, if others fall out to us from other places because they want to worship God, we'll thank Him for each of them. And we'll help them and we'll look for them to help us. But that's not our ambition. But if it comes our way, we'll thank Him for it. Let's turn now in our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, and without any review, other than that little introduction from 2 Chronicles 15, let us consider some further landmarks that define and distinguish our church from others. 2 Timothy chapter 1. This landmark is the fact that gospel evangelism, true Bible evangelism, is looking for God's elect to convert them. We are not looking to make elect. We are not looking to take goats and turn them into sheep. We are not looking to regenerate. We are not looking to have someone come forward, make a decision for Jesus, and sing, there's a new name written down in glory. We're not looking for any of that. We're looking for God's elect that we can show unto them the way of God more perfectly so that they can please Him, rejoice in God their Savior, and live lives that are pleasing to their Father. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 I'll read, and 10. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Our salvation is all wrapped up in the purpose and grace of God that was given to us before the world began. You aren't going to give it to anyone. There's no amount of preaching, there's no amount of baptizing by which you can give the purpose and grace of God to a man. God gave it before the world began, and our eternal life is wrapped up right there. But, for 4,000 years, the world did not know about the Savior. Then the Lord Jesus Christ came, and He brought it to light. He made it manifest. He made it clear how God could be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. How could God be just and save men? If he's just just, then he's going to judge all men for their sins and no one will be saved. If he saves without a punishment for sin, then he's not just. But he's just and a justifier. How did he do it? In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that whole scheme of grace is made manifest. It's made plain and obvious by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who appeared on this earth 2,000 years ago, the Son of God, lived a perfect life, made a confession under Pontius Pilate, laid down his life for his elect, was put in a tomb and stayed there three days and three nights, took up his life again, proved that he was alive by many infallible proofs 
for 40 days and 40 nights and ascended up into heaven where He sits forevermore. He's our Savior. And He brought that eternal life and made it manifest. And it says He abolished death Himself and hath brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. We do not carry life and immortality to men by the Gospel. We bring the light of those things. We show men with the light of the Gospel how life and immortality was purchased by Jesus Christ and given to the elect. We do not carry it to the far corners of the world to add to God's redemptive work. We carry it to the far corners of the world, and we shall shortly, to encourage, comfort, and bless those He has already saved for them to understand what God has done for them. Chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. Right there, close at hand, Paul said, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That is the purpose of gospel preaching, is to find the elect and to convey to them the glorious gospel rest that there is in Jesus Christ. Because without the gospel of grace, men are all their lifetimes subject to bondage through fear of death. Men who are afraid of dying are subject to every religious huckster that has ever come along. But when you bring the gospel of Jesus Christ and show men that Jesus Christ has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light, you free men, instead of Egyptians being used as grease on the the ramps made to haul those, those slabs of granite and other stone into place for the pyramids, you have men that are delivered from such superstition and fear. Instead of thinking that I can serve Allah by strapping a bomb to my wife and sending her into a restaurant and by sacrificing my, one of my, one of my four wives that way, I can get into heaven where I can have my 72 virgins under 12 palm trees. You know, that's all fear of death and wanting to do something for Allah. But you know, the gospel comes and delivers men from such fear. The greatest fear has been people sitting thumbing a rosary or doing penance or buying candles in a variety of churches to free dead relatives from purgatory or other places for the dead. And we are delivered by Jesus Christ, and so we take the gospel to show them that there is righteousness already secured for them by Jesus Christ. They do not have to earn it. He gives it. He has applied it. And they can be delivered from the fear and superstition of men. Now, how did the apostle do that? Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. How did Paul... This is such a wonderful, enlightening point. So few understand it. Paul went looking for the elect. He said, I endure all things for the elect's sake. How did he do it? Thank God for the Bible. Forget all the missionary ideas you've ever heard. Trust the Bible. In Acts chapter 16, Paul tried to go north. He tried to go south. This is all described in verses 6, 7, 8. And then a vision appears to him in the night and says, Come west. A man from Macedonia said, come over into Macedonia and help us. 
And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. And when he gets into the city of Philippi, a chief, chief city in that part of Macedonia, he goes out to a riverside where prayers want to be made. You can read it in 12, 13, and 14. And there he meets some women that gathered together for prayer. He was looking for God's elect. He did not go to a brothel and speak to the ladies at break time. He went to the riverside where prayer was want to be made. He didn't go to the haunts of the witches in town. He didn't go to the pagan temples. He didn't go to the mall to pass out tracts to those that were going about their ordinary business to buying merchandise. He went where prayer was want to be made. He wanted to find praying people and preach to them the truth. And the Lord had opened the hearts of His elect and they attended unto the things that Paul preached. And we have Lydia in her household. Right there. In Acts chapter 16. And we continue on down through that chapter. Then we come to chapter 17. There's many examples I could give you, but I want to focus it here on 17 and give a couple more passages. Look at verse 1. Acts 17.1 Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks a great multitude, and of the chief women not a few. When Paul went to town, he grabbed the phone book, the yellow pages, and he turned looking for synagogues. Synagogues were where a monotheistic religion, the true religion of God, was being observed. Instead of all the idols of the Ephesians, all the idols of the Greeks, he would go and find where the God of heaven was being worshipped. The God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, the creator of heaven and earth. Not the moon God of the Arabians named Allah, but Jehovah, the God of the Bible. And in a synagogue, he would find the Jews. Now remember, Paul's already turned away from the Jews to the Gentiles. Do you know when that occurred? What chapter did Paul turn away from the Jews to the Gentiles as his ministry? He declared it in 28 to the Jews at Rome. But in Acts 13... He said, you've judged yourself, you've judged yourselves, that's why no one else answers. I commend the courage. He says, you've judged yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Lo, we turn to the Gentiles. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. See, that's, that's what we go preach for. We want to find the ordained of God. They'll believe it. They'll believe it. Paul as his manner was. I love it that it tells me what Paul's missionary, wherever that word comes from, where Paul's evangelistic efforts were, what they were, his techniques, his method, was to go and find a synagogue and preach in that synagogue. Because in the synagogue were people that believed the Old Testament Scriptures and Jehovah, God of the Bible. There's two kinds of people there, and it tells us that right here. It says he went into them and there was a synagogue of the Jews. Now, if it's a synagogue of the Jews, that means they had established it and they were part of the congregation. But it also says in verse 4, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude. If you were a Greek and God had arrested your heart 
and given you the heart of Cornelius, and you were in a city like this, where would you go and worship? The synagogue of the Jews. The reputation of the Jews was known. The book of the Jews was known. And the worship of the Jews was known as being theistic of a Creator God that had dealt with His people on earth and had a written revelation. And they would go into those synagogues and read the Scriptures every Sabbath day. And that's where Paul would look when he went to town. And so Paul comes in here. Some of those Jews are converted that the Lord hadn't blinded. They hear Paul explain from their Scriptures, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. The Greeks hear that there's a Savior to deliver me from my sins who's abolished death and He's brought life and immortality. And this man that's preaching is telling us about it. And they believed. So he would leave in each town, some Jews and some Greeks, that God had elected, Christ had justified, the Spirit had regenerated, and Paul showed them the truth. And it tells us that. You don't go looking for those farthest from the truth. Have you, some of you have been around a while, and you've been to missionary conferences, where the emphasis seems to be, let's go into the dregs of society and find those that have the least fear of God. Let's see if we can find those in Psalm 10.4. God is not in all their thoughts. Let's go find some people that have never thought about God and let's get them to invite Jesus into their hearts. Now, because they've never thought about God, we need to help them. If they're hungry, let's fill their bellies. I'll bet they'll invite Him in for the next meal. If they're sick, let's vaccinate them. I'll bet they'll invite Him in for the next vaccination. If they need a hospital bed, if they need clothes, if they need a well, let's dig a well for them. We can build a church that way, and it works. Are you surprised that it works? It's an automatic. It's a no-brainer. You give somebody that doesn't have water, water, they'll follow your God. They'll invite Jesus into their heart. But you know what? Never did the apostles feed anybody to get a decision out of them. Never did they set up field hospitals or dig wells for the people. They went and preached the gospel. And that gospel was the record of God's election of certain men to salvation in Jesus Christ, death on the cross for them. And look what it says. When Paul used the Scriptures and preached that to them, some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas and of the devout Greeks a great multitude. The devout Greeks. Not the pagan Greeks. Not the sinning Greeks, not the Greeks that never thought of God, but the devout ones that would be found in a synagogue. This is gospel evangelism. This is Bible evangelism. We go looking for God's elect. We have a website and we are searching the world trying to find God's elect. We offer the book of Proverbs as a small pill for them to swallow and get hooked on the Word of God. If they're looking for the Word of God, they will find practical, hard-hitting, commentary on the book of Proverbs that they haven't heard before. We, but we're looking for people that are already reading the Bible. People that are already considering the Bible. People that are considering Christianity. We go looking for them. And when we find them, we try to explain the way of God to them more perfectly. We're trying to follow the Bible pattern. Much more could be said. If you think about the book of Acts, the men were sent to where there were elect that needed to be told the truth. Philip was taken by the Spirit down into the middle of the desert because there was one man there 
who was reading the Bible but didn't understand it. What, what's, could you help me with Philip's title? What was Philip's title in the Bible? Philip the Evangelist. So if we wanted to understand evangelism, we should look at Philip, maybe? Do you know what his evangelism was? He went looking for Bible readers and he would ask, do you know, do you understand what you're reading? And the man would say, how can I except some man should guide me? And what did he do then? He preached Jesus to him. Have you read that in the book of Acts chapter 8? He preached Jesus to him. He had a willing audience. We do not cast our pearls before swine. We do not go down Main Street and just toss tracks indiscriminately with the good things of Jesus Christ. We go looking for those people that fear God. There's a couple chapters worth about Cornelius. Peter was sent to Cornelius. But why did Peter go to Cornelius? Because some men arrived at his gate and said, come and preach to us. Who were those men sent by? Cornelius. He wanted to hear the truth. He was looking for the truth. We believe in going after any elect child of God that we can find anywhere in the world. We'll do anything for even a single one of them. What we are about to do in this church is for a very small number of people, and we're doing it because we were asked to do it. And we are going to go do it. And it's costly to go do it. By the way, I want to tell you that you have sitting among yourselves a benefactor that has already put up 10K for that trip. There are great brothers in this church, and they bless God, bring tears to my eyes and quivers to my soul that I'm associated with men like that. And there's more than one in this church. Anybody accuses us of not being missionary-minded? Lay that on them. Lay on them the amount of work that we put into our website and send it around the world with all sorts of subjects, with everything from a letter from Abigail to wives, to commentary on Proverbs, to sermons that are preached, years' worth of sermons, in in the most updated format that we know how to put out there on the Internet. We have singing out there for them. We have everything that we can possibly think of that might attract what kind of a person? An elect person that's quickened in their heart and is looking for the true worship of God. We're not out there trying to find anyone less than that. Thank you, Lord. You know many more verses could be raised. I don't need to show you any more on this point. Let's go to another point. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Another landmark. Another landmark. You say, I want to hear more about Bible evangelism. Okay? It's a, it's a long outline and multiplied sermons on the Internet entitled, Why Preach the Gospel and Why No Invitation? We've done it all before. I don't need to do it again right now. We want to grab the landmark. We do not go trying to make God's elect. We do not go trying to regenerate anyone. We go trying to find God's regenerate elect and preach to them. Do you know what the Bible says about preaching to the lost? It's a total waste of time. When we can make the difference, we avoid them. Where does it say, where does it say things like that? It says, in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Amen. It doesn't matter how well you might present the things of the Spirit of God to a natural man, he will never receive them. Why waste our time? We do care about souls. We will endure all things for the elect's sakes, just like Paul said. This is a landmark. And it's fallen in most places. 
And we're going to stick with it. Acts is our missionary manual. Acts is our evangelism handbook. And no other book. Switch gears. Another landmark. We are a church that seeks to practice Bible church discipline. It is a landmark that has fallen away. Churches today do not want to practice church discipline. You cannot have church discipline and have a megachurch. The definition of a megachurch is we cannot do anything that would decrease numbers. We must do everything that would increase numbers. And church discipline is not good for growing. It's not good for growing in two ways. First of all, the people that you exclude are taken off your list of members. So that shrinks your number. And then everyone sitting in the pew that sees someone else excluded for something they've done, they don't like going to a church like that. And so it shrinks it again. We try to practice church discipline. We are not heroes. We are not special. Every church should be doing it. It's plainly taught in the Bible. I've told you some of the numbers. You know, I've told you that while Rick Warren gets 20,000 at Saddleback Community, there's 80,000 members. Where are the 60,000? They're at home watching TV. They're at home sleeping. You know, if Rick Warren wanted to have a church, the first thing he would do is have the 20,000 exclude the 60,000. The next Sunday, there would only be 2,000. Then the 2,000 could exclude the 18,000. The next Sunday, there would only be 200. Then the 200 could exclude the 1,800. Then he'd have a church just like ours. I would hope that there might be more than that there. But you know, when you go to their website and read the content of their sermons and listen to their music, you'd wonder if there's any there. Church discipline. You know, I just mentioned attendance. Attendance is something the apostles required. It wasn't a suggestion. It wasn't a good idea. It's not something that socially is acceptable and helps build churches that everyone comes every Sunday to every assembly. Unless there's an act of God in their lives, which we always allow and always have and always will. That This is apostolic tradition. If you're a member of a church, if you're part of a body, you need to show up to be with that body. It's a body function when we worship together. So we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and there's a whole chapter about this subject of church discipline. I'm not going to read the whole thing. You're well familiar with it. There was a fornicator in the church at Corinth. He was sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul rebukes this church in verse 2 and says, Ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned, that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already, as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And he tells you in verses 12 and 13, get that member out of the church. Get him out. Put him out where God can get at him. In the church there is some protection. There is safety. It is a hedge. Get him out where God can get at him. But now notice it says when the whole church comes together. Verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together, In a full assembly, God's ministers are to identify public sinners and they're to be put out. 
Paul said, I'm not there. I'm putting this in a letter. But I'm writing you just as if I were there. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, get that fornicator out of that church. This public sin is of common report, it tells us in the first couple of verses. That means it's public. There is a 75-page document on our website again. 75 pages carefully done with case study after case study to help you see how church discipline is to be applied to a variety of cases. And we try to practice it. I would hope that if we had such a situation where there was a brother in this church sleeping with his father's wife, you wouldn't take a, you wouldn't need a whole lot of instruction. What was this church doing? They were puffed up in pride. They were so puffed up. Look at all the spiritual gifts we have. God must be pleased with us the way we're doing things because we're all babbling in tongues every time we get together. So they were puffed up. And Paul said you should be mourning. You should be sickened by this going on in your church. You should be angry over it. There's a place for church judgment. I want to read those last two verses to you of the chapter. For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? Anyone outside the church I don't have any jurisdiction over. Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without God judgeth. Therefore put away from among yourselves that wicked person. Church membership is a very real thing. It is called yourselves. It is called when ye are come together into one place. And when someone sins it's part of that membership, you put them out. They are no longer part of that membership. They are no longer welcome at our table. We're going to keep our table without the leaven of malice and wickedness as the rest of that chapter explains. And once they're put outside, God can go after them. On the inside, there is a measure of protection for them. They're in the body. And it's the church that's supposed to put them out. And when the church puts them out, there is acknowledgement of that action in heaven. Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then God goes after them. They're turned over to Satan for the destruction of the sinful flesh that would want to sleep with your father's wife so that the spirit can be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. That doesn't mean so that they can get eternal life. That means so that they can repent fully from that sin and meet Jesus Christ without that still on their record. That's why we discipline. It's to save men in a Bible way. But you know what? It shrinks churches. So people don't like to do it. It causes family disputes. You know, I'm thankful that we have a church that if we were to exclude a public sinner from any family in here, I believe the rest of that family would be the first to stand in their exclusion. And I would ask them to be the first to stand because that's the way it was done in the Old Testament. And we have done it before, haven't we, brethren? Just that way. Church discipline. It's gone the way of the dinosaur. Let's not get on that subject. I don't even want you thinking about it. I don't even want you thinking about it. But it's gone away. And here, what we want to do is we want to set a stake in the ground that will never be moved. This church has got to practice church discipline. It's a pillar of apostolic churches. It's an ancient landmark. It's the old paths. It's the right way to have a church. You know, today you can float in. Take, they have open communion, open membership. No one really cares. They just read off a list. All these people would like to be members. Do I have a, do I have a motion? Do I have a second? You're members. And on they go. No commitment. Nothing. We're not heroes. We are nothing but sinners saved by the grace of God. And we tell everyone that visits our assembly that. 
We are nothing but ugly sinners trying to follow the Bible. But in following the Bible, one of the landmarks you can't let this church lose is church discipline. When someone does something publicly, we put them out. And we include apostolic tradition like church attendance because it's taught in the Bible. It's taught by the apostles. It's taught by our brother Paul. So we practice church discipline, and that's a pillar. Look at Acts chapter 15. I'm moving to a third ancient landmark. You say, I want to know more about church discipline. There's a 75-page document called Church Discipline. I believe I preached four sermons from it. It's full of case studies. It is really pleasant reading. It's, it's easy reading because it goes through the entire New Testament and explains how it's done. There's three questions you always ask. Is it a small sin or a large sin? That's a sin against God or a sin against man. Is there repentance or no repentance? What's the other question? Is it public or private? And with three questions, and each one of them have two options, you have eight, eight issues that you need to solve. And it's, and it's, there's a nice little framework to go through to find out how a church deals with each of the eight possible combinations of answers to those three questions. And there's case studies of private, you know, we all sin privately. And we confess those to God and we go on, but when things become public, or how do private sins become public? Or what happens if there's a dispute between individuals and eventually that gets before the church and the person doesn't want to hear the church? It becomes public. It's all there. I feel bad preaching this way. Some of you thank me for it, that we're just racing over the highlights of some of these landmarks, but I want you to know there's much, much more detail because we want to be as detailed as God expects us to be in applying the Bible. And then you can go read our commentary on 1 Corinthians 5 and our commentary on 2 Corinthians 2 where that fornicator was taken back into the church. You know, in our New Testaments, we're not only told where that fornicator was put out, 1 Corinthians 5, but he was brought back in in 2 Corinthians 2. So we're told both ends. And when we take a, a, a repentant sinner back into this church, we kill the fatted calf and buy a robe and a ring. Praise the Lord. It's wonderful to be a part of a church like this that's trying to follow the Lord. You turn to Acts chapter 15, and I want to read verse 41. Acts 15, 41. It's a simple little verse. It's talking about Paul. He went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the churches. I want to focus on the word churches. We believe in church independence. That means as a church, we don't align ourselves with other churches and call the combined total the church. Don't you ever let anybody use that kind of a terminology about local churches being banded together and being called the church. It's not the church. It's still the churches. I'm just using one example here. I love the fact that it's in Acts 15. If there was ever a place for an association, a convention... A denomination, a fellowship, a formal fellowship, or any type of super church organization to have been formed, when would it have occurred in the New Testament? Right here in Acts 15. Because it's where all the elders came together. The apostles and the elders came together to settle some important issues. But you know the letter they sent out did not say anything about annual dues, that we're going to hold you in disorder if you don't preach all the brethren that attended this assembly 
No traditions were established at all. They sent a letter saying, God has inspired a council of apostles and elders, and they are putting no further burden on you than these four things about the Jewish law. You Gentiles are free to live any way you wish, except in these four matters. Would you please help us with the Jews that are being converted around you? And that was it. And as you read through the New Testament, it's churches, plural, because every individual church stands before God. There is one head of our church. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one manual for our church, it's the Bible. I am nothing but Jesus Christ's ambassador and your servant. And we together, as a body of Jesus Christ, are the church. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. Look at 1 Corinthians 12. We are the church. And another. I hope that there's other pastors right now, possibly, by the providence of God, saying the very same words. Telling their His congregation, the Lord's congregation, we're the church. Because every local assembly is the church. It's not part of the church. It's the church. Because we're dealing with an, with an entity that by itself is the body of Christ. We, as the church of Greenville, are not just the hand of a bigger body. We are the body of Christ. Now, there is a larger body of the family of God that's made up of all the elect. Don't get me wrong. But in that body... The hand, the right hand, is not serving the left hand. They don't even know each other yet. In this body, we have all the members of a full body. All the member, all you members make up the corporate body of one church, and it's called the church, and it's called the body of Christ, even when it's only a local assembly in one place. First Corinthians 12, verse 27. First Corinthians 12, 27. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. To whom was Paul writing? The Corinthian church. The saints of God that were at Corinth. And he says ye, that plural pronoun, the members at Corinth, ye are the body of Christ. Is there a bigger body? Of course. I'm not denying that. But when we're dealing with church, corporate worship, church membership, local churches, Each individual church stands alone, and we believe in total local church independence. You know, they call themselves independent Baptists in this county, and that means a different thing. They're independent, pretty much, but many of those independent Baptist churches also join associations and universities and other organizations to collect themselves together. We will fellowship with any true church of Jesus Christ. We will exchange letters. We will pray for them. We will send money when they are, their, their poor are in need. We've already done it. But as far as any authority over us, don't you, you young men, don't you ever, ever submit this church to any organization. No organization. I don't care what it's called. I don't care who makes it up. And I don't care how nice the people are. Keep this church independent so that as the Lord leads us, and convicts us from His Word. We can humble ourselves before this Word and change in one Sunday. We don't have to fear anyone from outside this church making a change to follow God's Word. We we will not be held accountable to any organization of men. We are going to follow the Lord the way He designed in the New Testament. Because there are going to be heresies near and far. And we are going to have to take stands against them. And if we involve ourselves in some organization, they will bring pressure and intimidation to bear on us to make us comply with them. 
And there'll be simple sheep in the congregation that don't understand why we're going to have to separate from sweet Susie. Sweet Susie has nothing to do with the worship of Jesus Christ. It's the mighty Prince Jesus Christ that has everything to do with the worship of Jesus Christ. He must be the only head of this church. We cannot compromise His Lordship by involving ourselves in other organizations. We are the body of Christ. We are the church of Christ. And there's many more just like us. Lord, help every single one of them to be just as independent-minded as we are. And when I say independent, I mean independent from men, and I mean dependent on God. Dependent on God and dedicated to God's Word. I do not mean independent from that. And I am nothing except His servant to bring God's Word to all of us that we can put it into practice. There's no Baptist church in the New Testament. There's only Baptist churches. And they're not called Baptist churches. They're called the churches of Jesus Christ because He's the one that owns them. Turn to Romans 14. Romans 14. It's just a few pages away. Another, another landmark. Oh, how many churches have been, have been crushed by the organizations of men where the intimidation and the pressure that comes upon the pastor and upon the church forces them to compromise what their convictions are. It's hard enough to follow God's Word without someone on the outside of us influencing us. You say, but there could be safety in numbers. Find it in the Bible. I'll show you where safety is. It's, it is in numbers. It's in chapter numbers and verse numbers. That's where safety is. Search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Don't run to the association. What do you think of that church over there? Look what they're doing. And down comes the hammer. To go to, to go to association meetings or organizational meetings or denominational meetings where you're just one in a crowd and you, God has convicted you and you, you are afraid to get up and say something because you know the other 90 are going to call you a heretic. We want to avoid that. We want to avoid any outside of Scripture pressure that would make this church compromise. Romans 14, verse 1, Him that is weak in the faith receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Can I just read those two verses and remind you that we have an ancient landmark called Christian liberty. If God hasn't condemned it, we don't condemn it. If God hasn't commanded it, we don't command it. If God hasn't commanded it or condemned it, you can do whatever you wish with it, as long as there's no doubtful disputations, you're not led into temptation, you don't offend a brother, you don't put a stumbling block before others, and you don't create an offense to the gospel. Go ahead and do whatever you want. Did I preach that to you recently? I just need to mention it to you. A landmark of a true church of Jesus Christ is Christian liberty. We do not rule on your liberty. And we will defend both sides of every issue that we call liberty. No matter what my liberty might be. My liberty does not matter. Unless it comes to a real difference between the holy and the profane, and I will try to divide. But if there's a difference between the holy and profane, it must not truly be a matter of liberty. The Bible must have something to say about it. Because if the Bible doesn't have anything to say about it, I'm not going to have anything to say about it. And I, I can say a lot about a lot of things. But who cares? On matters of Christian liberty, I'm going to defend both sides, even if I think one side is stupid and the other side is wise. 
And I hate even saying that, but you don't even know what side I'm on because you don't even know what issue I'm talking about. Because it doesn't matter. And we all have to take that attitude. I'm going to take the back of every brother in this church on any matter of liberty. Because the day we let that down, and we start ruling in matters of liberty of what's acceptable to God and what isn't when God hasn't ruled, we're going down the, we're going down the path of Phariseeism. Right. You saw what was read to us earlier today about the Pharisees making all their little ticky-tack rules. We're not going to have those. I try to keep all that stuff out of this pulpit as much as possible. I have a lot of opinions. All of you know that, that know me. I'm as opinionated as anyone sitting in here. And I love to spout them off if it weren't for the grace of God, but we can't spout them off here. And we can't spout them off when we're out of the pulpit standing around talking. If it's a matter of liberty, let it go. Look what it says. One believeth that he may eat all things. Another who is weak eateth herbs. One couldn't handle eating meat offered to an idol. Another man could. And you know what? We're going to meet and we're going to sing together of one mind, one soul, one heart, one judgment, because those things do not matter in the sight of God. If you were to keep, if you were to keep reading on down through here, it says, it doesn't, the Lord doesn't care. Look at verse 6. He that regardeth the day, regardeth it unto the Lord. And he that regardeth not the day, to the Lord, he doth not regard it. <laughs> I love that. I, lo- I love the Bible. And I mean that. I've read, I've read a lot of other books. And they're all worthless trash in comparison to the Word of God. He that eateth, eateth to the Lord, for he giveth God thanks. And he that eateth not, to the Lord he eateth not, and giveth God thanks. Paul wrote it that way by the Holy Spirit just for us to get a smile on our faces. God doesn't care. As long as you're doing it to the Lord, if you're eating meat that's been offered to an idol and you're doing it to the Lord, Lord, I know that stupid idol down the street that these people offered this to isn't a stupid thing. And everyone that worships it's just like it. And then you read Psalm 115 and say, hand me the knife. As you eat a piece of steak that was offered to an idol. And another man can't do it. He said, Lord, I hate that idol so much. And I used to worship that thing. I'm not going to touch meat that was offered to that because I want to give you the glory by being a vegetarian the rest of my life because I hate that idol. And he gives God thanks and eats his salad. And then the the salad eater and the meat eater come together in church and have one supper that they can eat together. And it's the Lord's Supper and they hug each other and kiss each other and they go home in total peace, one mind, one heart, one faith, one judgment, one baptism. Praise the Lord. He tells us things we have to divide over and He tells us things you better never divide over those things. That's an ancient landmark. 